0: Welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington DC. In this episode, we talk about recent protests in Iran's province of Khuzestan that has spread to some other areas in the country, and we take a look at the ongoing waves of protests across Iran in the past few years. Why are Iranians protesting? What are their demands? And where are these protests going? My guest today is Mohammad Ali Khadivar, an assistant professor of sociology and international studies at Boston College. He's joining me from Cambridge, Massachusetts today. Ali, welcome to the Iran podcast.
1: Uh, hi Negar, thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you for coming on. Um, so let's talk about Khuzestan first, this oil rich province in southwestern Iran. We've seen over a week of protest in Khuzestan, first centering around a shortage of water, demands for clean water, and um, basically turning deadly and violent. We saw very um, violent repression by the security forces. Um, human rights organizations are reporting um, around eight people dead. It might actually be more the real number killed um, in in the process of protests and a number of people injured and also a higher number arrested. Talk about what sparked these protests, how they developed, and what are the actual demands and slogans of the protesters and the dynamics in that province and area.
1: For sure. I think for to have a good understanding of these protests, we need to pay attention to two Different contexts. One broader context of the political regime in Iran and the changes that have been happening in the Islamic Republic in the uh, last few years, and then the specific issues and grievances that uh, concern the protest in Khuzestan. Uh, mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I start with the first one
0: about the. Sure, yeah. sure.
1: Um, so, what we I mean is, Islamic Republic has. We can classify it as an electoral authoritarian regime it's a, or a hybrid regime. It has uh, semi-electoral institutions such as presidency, parliament, and city and village councils, and then non-electoral institutions such as the Office of the Leader, the Revolutionary Guards, the Judiciary, the, uh, and the Guardian Council. Um, the Quasi- or semi-electoral institutions over the last 40 years have provided a venue for a degree of competition between uh, regime insiders and have been also provided venues for uh, popular participation. They have not been fully democratic, as we know, because not everyone can run in these elections. But in these elections, um, they can, some of the candidates that are more, from more excluded factions at times have tried to represent some of the concerns and grievances of the population that has been excluded from participation in the political process. Mm-hmm. But this degree of representation has uh, considerably declined, I would say, over the last uh, four years. Institutions such as presidency and parliament have really lost their capacity to represent um, grievances of the population. Let me make an example here. Uh, in, uh, it was two years ago that we had the hike in the gasoline prices and there were protests in uh, a number of uh, Iranian cities that were faced mm-hmm. with a violent crackdown by government. So mm-hmm. initially, when the, the hike in the price was announced, The parliament said that they're going to meet and they're going to freeze the price. But the supreme leader came out and said this is a policy that has been determined and should be uh, implemented. And the parliament backed backed out out of the decision. This showed that the parliament is not a decision maker. The parliament doesn't matter anymore. So this has uh, increased over... Last few years, and we can see the the last instance, the last manifestation of this in the presidential, the recent presidential election. There was mm. no real uh, competition. Uh, we know that Ibrahim Raisi was the favorite candidate of the establishment. Um, not even second tier um, reformist or moderate candidates such as Saeed Javid or Larijani were uh, allowed to run. It was a very easy competition for Raisi to win. But the, mm-hmm. polit- the, the turnout was the lowest of any presidential election since the beginning of the Islamic Republic. This shows that the large segment of the population, at least for now, have lost their hope to follow up their grievances, their demands, their claims, through the institutions of the Islamic Republic. Mm-hmm. And that's why when we see a hike in the gasoline prices, or this issue in, in, in Khuzestan about the low quality of water or pretty much no access to drinking water. I mean, you can imagine that the Islamic Republic could fix the water, but this is not what the people perceive. The people perceive that the Islamic Republic cannot deliver anymore and has failed to deliver on the daily needs of the ordinary citizens. And there is also no venue, such as elections or negotiations, uh, with the with the officials to make them to uh, to deliver such services. That's mm-hmm. why we see people come out to protest. Other thing is that uh, the government has also repressed institutions of civil society, organizations that could have represented these demands. And for example, if we had in these cities in Khuzestan, if we had actual local government government in which citizens were able to be part of the decision-making about the oil projects or about the dams in the, uh, in the province, they could have had more say about what, what, what is happening to their daily life. But such things have not happened. Those organizations don't exist. Many activists in uh, Khuzestan from the Arab population have been accused of being affiliated to the separatist groups and have been jailed. So the government actively have uh, suppressed social groups that could have mediated the grievances of the population uh, and the responses of the government. Mm -hmm. I think this is a very important context uh, to have in mind. Now if we Mm -hmm. go to the province of Khuzestan, these protests I think have uncovered some deep wounds in Khuzestan, particularly among the Arab population of Khuzestan. Khuzestan is multi-ethnic, similar to many other provinces in Iran. There are Arabs in Khuzestan, there are Lurs, there are some Qashqai Turks, and there are also some Farsi speakers in some of the the counties and cities. But the protests started in uh, counties, in in cities with, with Arab population, it has been more intense and it has la- it lasted longer in cities with Arab population. After I think about a week, we for example saw protests in Ize. Ize is not an Arab city. We have Bahti Lors in uh, in Ize. And after Mm -hmm. Ize, we saw that the the protests spread out in uh, some other locations that are not necessarily Arab population. But I think it's important to recognize where the protests start and look at the grievances of the Arabs. There are -hmm. different ethnic groups in Iran, and these different ethnic groups such as Kurds, Arab, and uh, Baluch, or Lur, they feel that they are... uh, discriminated against, they feel marginalized. And I have looked at some of the data. There is some evidence that delivery of some of the services uh, in areas with higher proportion of some of this ethnic population is lower. For example, I've looked. Uh, I looked at um, access to electricity, and um, in in areas that there's higher Arab population the we have lower access. There are more uh, residential units that don't have uh, access to electricity. I'm looking for data to also look at the access to water. So there is some evidence of uh, at least disparity of access uh, for uh, by ethnic population in Iran. It varies by ethnic groups and it varies by services, but it's not all even. So I think there is some objective ground for the grievances that Arabs and other ethnic populations in Iran now what do they say in this protest particularly so one issue is about war there are uh, big rivers in Khuzestan Karun, mm-hmm. is these are two of the biggest rivers in Iran Arabs in Khuzestan and other people in Khuzestan are saying that we are in we are close to this war but despite the fact that of, of our proximity we don't have uh, clean drinking water there are state policies that have caused this uh, and I think we have been learning more about this some of the develop mental projects that have been implemented and planned with a disregard to the indigenous population of the area for example we have uh, industrial power plants in the middle of the country in dry areas this these industrial plants they need water and so they have been channeling the water from places like Khuzestan to uh, places like uh, Yazd in the center of Iran. So this mm-hmm. is one reason for grievances. The other is that many dams that have been built in Iran, again, the dams have been built with uh, without much regard for the environmental consequences. Now we are learning that uh, the development a lot of developmental projects in Iran have been planted and implemented without any regard for environmental consequences and for the consequences for uh, the indigenous population uh, there is a I mean and we also know that when there are environmental problems not all parts and segments of population suffer from these uh, issues evenly. Mm -hmm. People who are closer to those areas suffer more. So about the dams, for example, uh, we know that um, this leads, for example, to some of the lakes or sources of water in the area to dry out. This has caused the winds to go over those lakes to become dry winds. And these dry winds then have dry out uh, agricultural lands that some of the air population have been working on. So they have lost Mm -hmm. their access to agriculture. This is one problem in the area. The other problem is that this is a province that many of Iran's oil fields are located in. Um, Again, the development development and implementation of plans for uh, extracting oil has been without much regard for the indigenous population and environment. For example, uh, we have heard about this source of water, Hurul Azim, that has been dried out. And now we have learned that the Iran's um, Security Council gave permission to dry out the water source so they can uh, they can extract the oil cheaper. And they didn't think or care what would be the consequences of this. Well, the consequences have been again more uh, damage to the agriculture of the indigenous population in the area, particularly the Arab population. So oil has taken priority and again, people in the center of the country have benefited more from uh, extraction of oil than this uh, uh, many of the Arab population that live in those areas when the oil is uh, extracted. Another mm-hmm. source of grievance is that, uh, oil industry has created jobs in the area, but again, the indigenous population, particularly Arabs, they have not been employed in the oil industry as much. Other, um, there has been other uh, industrial plants such as uh, the sugarcane cane in Haftape to, uh, to develop that plant. Again, some of the water sources have been dried out, so it has damaged the agriculture in the area. But the jobs in the sugarcane, again, has not gone to the indigenous population. I think uh, an audio recording was recently uh, distributed that um, the Friday leader and the representative of uh, Khamenei was talking about this issue. So there are documents that the Iranian officials actually know about. So this has not been a secret. Now the protests are just uh uncovering these issues i think Mm -hmm. so we have had these local grievances in the context of uh the failure of government to deliver services we have had a year of drought again experts environmental experts have been warning about this that we are going to have a water shortage and again Mm -hmm. some of the developmental projects that iran has had has not been compatible with the water sources that we have in the country. For example, uh, Mr. Khamenei, leader of the country, has said recently that we we need a bigger population. I think he wants a bigger population because he sees Iran, Iran in confrontation and strategic competition with other regional power in the United States. But the question that environmental experts and activists have been asking is that does the country actually have the natural resources for uh, a bigger population? It looks like that we, uh, Iran, we, we don't have the, the resources even for the current population of the country. So the population mm-hmm. has grown too big and even larger growth for population is going to uh, cause further environmental uh, problems for the country. So these mm-hmm. things have come together. The decline of representative institutions and increase in the level of repression, and these uh, longer-term uh, issues for that developmental projects uh, have caused for environmental damages and for the grievances of uh, ethnic and indigenous population. Uh, mm-hmm. This this has been the source of this, or an important context for these protests. It's uh,
0: it's. Important, as you said, to note that it's basically ironic that Khuzestan is the source of one of the country's most valuable assets. It's the oil-rich province, but it's not, as expected, become a prosperous region. You see a lot of this poverty and um, various issues building up in this area so these protests as you mentioned decades of government mismanagement bad planning disregard for environmental issues and then combined with um, drought and um, essentially this global climate uh, climate change we we saw that the protests started around this main slogan I am thirsty." Mm-hmm. Which was basically a demand for water. But then it turned, they turned more radical. The demands or the slogans became more radical. Talk about some of these dynamics and then also the response. Um, of the government and security forces who accuse protesters in this area of being tied to separatist movements, to foreign powers who want to meddle in the country, Arab countries in the Persian Gulf, the U.S., Israel, and how basically the state has responded to this week-long series of protests.
1: Yeah, you pointed to an ongoing discourse of repression in Iran. I mean, I don't think we can name a single episode of protest uh, in Iran that the government officials didn't accuse to be a plot of Israel and the US. Can you remember one? I cannot not remember. Not
0: really, no. So, f- <laughs>
1: for over the last four years, anytime Iranians have come to the street or even not to the street, to in on university campuses to express their grievances within within the context, framework of Islamic republic or outside the framework of the Islamic republic they have been called the agents of the imperialism so i don't yes there is a lot of regional uh, rivalry this con- iran tried to Iran tries to like interfere in the, the affair of these other countries they try to interfere in iran's affairs but we know that there is actual base for this protest I don't think another country can create and generate a protest of this scale, just from mm-hmm. scratch. So this has been the, just a discourse of repression, and unfortunately, this has been there. So in uh, there were protests in um, in December of 2017, 18, and then there were anti-government protests in after the hike in the gasoline price in uh, November of 2019. And now we have this wave of protest. And the response by government has been brutal, um, using live ammunition against unarmed uh, protesters. The death toll in uh, 2019 was exceptionally high. Uh, the small number we have from Amnesty International is 300 people were killed in the span of one week, which I think is a large number. There are other talks about 1,500. I don't think even we need to exaggerate or go that high. Three, kill, killing 300 uh, civilians in one week is, is quite brutal. Mm-hmm. So we have this level of repression. On the other hand, so r- you remember recently government shut down the largest charity network in Iran, Imam Ali, a charity network that was not political by any uh, by any means so no independent organization is uh tolerate even if they are not like imam ali for example they were very intentional not to engage in politics whatsoever but that doesn't matter because islamic republic sees them as a rival and so they shut them down and mm-hmm. there are like there we have environmental activists in prison again now they have been accused of espionage so th- this contributes to a situation like this because these are organizations that could represent the population and could say uh, can tell the government these are the grievances and these are some possible solutions because water shortage uh, gas prices these are policy issues that could be perhaps uh, addressed but there is no organization to channel them and whenever people come to the street they uh, they face violence we are not seeing any. I mean, the officials have said that. Uh, I mean, Mr. Khamenei had, had said that we cannot uh, we cannot reproach the protesters. But this is not an. I mean, he he must be accountable and responsible for this. We haven't heard any specific change in policy, any plan to address the problems of Khuzestan Province and, and their population. So what we have been observing is that the lack of uh, policy-oriented planning to address the issues, uh, decline of representative institutions within the state, repression of mediating organizations that could uh, have been here and articulate the grievances of protesters, and violent repression of protests. It is likely that I think we see more of these protests and they would be probably more aggressive and assertive because... Violence by the state just brings more grievances, more anger. What we see now among Iran protesters and on Iran social media, which is a source of concern, is there is a lot of anger. And mm-hmm. if this anger doesn't get channeled into organization, solidarity, and something constructive, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm concerned about the future. I'm worried.
0: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, at least some of the um, recent protests before Khuzestan. We've been seeing these waves mm. coming and going, waves of protests um, s- sparked with various different issues, but then sort of all um, morphing into radical slogans yeah. and demands that then go back to these Um, problems or underlying issues that you were talking about Mm. talk about um the past few years i think the past three or four years Mm -hmm. and these rounds of protests that we're seeing and what sort of um commonality you've been seeing in different areas of the country over the price of fuel (laughs) now over water Mm -hmm. and different other issues
1: uh yes so one um So between I mentioned three waves of protests. What is common between all of them is that there were clear slogans for the collapse of the Islamic Republic. There were slogans against the clergy, totality of clergy. There were slogans against uh, Mr. Khamenei, Iran's leader. Uh, If we we can go back a little bit more and contrast it with the protests in 2009, I think the contrast can help us understand what has changed. We had protests in 2009 after a presidential election that a lot of people perceived fraudulent people came to the street but they were calling for recounting of the vote and the, i think the most they wanted was a new election or recounting vote a cha- or make change of the president these demands they were still within the constitution of the islamic republic they were mm. not they were not asking for the uh, for the regime change i mean mm. some, let me
0: make a note that also in 2009, we're talking about the Green Movement. It was the largest yeah. protest mm-hmm. since the 1979 revolution. Um, but again, as you're explaining, within with demands within the system.
1: Yeah, so some people might argue that pe- the protesters framed the demands within the system, and their leaders also did. What well, you could say the implication would go beyond the system. But mm-hmm. at least at the surface, surface, it was within the system. And
0: it was around an, a presidential yeah. election that was held mm-hmm. by the Islamic Republic and sort of the main demand was a protest of the result of that election, which people saw as rigged.
1: Exactly. I think that just brings another interesting comparison. We also now are seeing protests after a presidential election. But the protests that is, are happening now are not about that. I mean, they're definitely mm-hmm. related, but they're not calling for, like, recount of the vote or another election. Mm-hmm. It looks like that these protests, they have just given up on the institutions of the Islamic Republic. But mm-hmm. the protests in 2009 were trying to reform the institutions of the Islamic Republic. The response, mm-hmm. of course, was repression. I think over 100 people were killed. And during the, those protests. And what was different about those protests was that they were mostly in Tehran. We saw hundreds of thousands of people came to protest in Tehran and some of the other big cities such as Tabriz and Shiraz, but it was not widespread in, among other cities. What is different over the last few years is that protests have been starting not from Tehran. Protests have been starting now is in the south, southern-western province of Khuzestan, The protests in 2009 were widespread in, I think, all the provinces had protests. Uh, Same also for 2017-18. So we have had a geographic spread of protests. In terms of number of participants, my guess is still that 2009 we had larger number of people participated, but it was concentrated in a few metropolitan areas. So I mentioned how violent was repression of 2009. So after 2009, in 2013, some part of the Green Movement decided to participate in the election of Rouhani, and they came before Rouhani, which was not a reformist. Rouhani was not a reformist. He was a moderate candidate. And uh, I think some part of reformists, part of reform movement, part of the population who wanted change, who wanted more democratic society, they thought that Maybe they can still follow their hopes through the institutions of the regime. So 2013, 2017, and we had the nuclear deal. That was a great achievement. But, uh, I mean, Donald Trump was elected. the nuclear deal was violated by the United States. And Rouhani also did not really deliver on his promises about political reform in Mm Iran. And then the economy really declined. Inflation rose, uh, currency exchange, uh, Iran's currency really dropped in terms of exchange with, with dollar. And we know that poverty has uh, increased. So people, many people thought that it was a futile attempt to try the institutions of Islamic Republic and go vote for one of the insider in the hope uh, to, for representation of their demands within the framework of the regime. I think it is that disappointment that has resulted in this type of anti, uh, fully anti-regime uh, protests.
0: But let's also talk about the response of the state and this mm-hmm. very violent repression that you're talking about. It did very sure uh, start in two thousand nine. Basically, they were able to wrap up the protests, which we're going fairly long for months and months. there were calls for protests around the green movement and people showed up, but it started to get more violent and more um, people were being killed and injured and also arrested. Um, but we don't see that response, this violent response, really stopping people, as you're saying, and the demands and the grievances continue Talk about this response specifically to the protests in the past few years. In November 2019, mm-hmm. which was very brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones the, uh, 2017 protests before that. And then also this round in Khuzestan and then other yeah. cities. Um,
1: yeah, I think repression is not going to stop this protest. When the 2019 protests happened with two of my students and colleagues, we published an article in Foreign Affairs. And there we argued that there are structural factors driving the protest, so repression is not going to stop it. If if actually people have lost their hope in uh, pursuing their demands through the institutions of regime, more and more repression is just going to convince them more that there is no way that they can improve their livelihood and their uh, open-up space for political ex- expression through the Islamic Republic. So there are, I think there's a political context and there is there are serious social and economic grievances. Like the livelihood, daily livelihood of people have become harder and harder over the last, uh, last few years. <clears throat> it has not improved. So Rohan's administration was not able to improve the political life in Iran, neither the economic life. This doesn't automatically lead to kind of anti-government protest. Economic problems lead to anti-government protests and people feel, uh, perceive and feel that they cannot address or improve their livelihood by further participation within uh, the political institutions of the regime. Each time that Islamic Republic uses violence against protesters, it creates a layer of problem. So we know that the 2019 protests specifically were a turning point i think the repression of those protests were became more important than the protest in himself it was shocking especially for part of the middle tehrani middle class that has stayed out and had not gone out or they didn't know or they felt distant from the protest the violent response of the state um I think it even convinced more people that uh, there is no prospect for reform within mm-hmm. the Islamic Republic. And this was an important talking point during the recent presidential election. This was an ongoing ar- argument that you probably also saw on se- social media. People said mm-hmm. after the blood was shed in 2009, there is no prospect, there is no hope for uh, for change within islamic republic a government that so easily kills unarmed civilians that are just are protesting something like a gas price there's they're not going to like uh, concede to bigger or similar demands so repression i think is just going to aggravate grievances so if we had the disillusionment in political system repression is just going to increase this disillusion more and more. Each new wave of protests we have, there will be a new wave of repression, and that more people will die, more people will be arrested, their families will be involved. This would just spread out political discontent uh, mm-hmm. throughout the country. And one other thing I would like to mention is that in two thousand nine, we also had this uh, cities with larger Arab population that participated in protest. So there are particular grievances that have become politicized in a way that people just see the end of islamic republic as a pre, as a precursor for their basic needs to be met this is i think this is an important context for why we have had this type of protest with the radical tone against the regime and it's i would I, i'd say it's highly likely we will see uh, Similar situation, similar type of protest as this status quo just continues.
0: Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, it seems like the repression is getting even more violent and more brazen. In 2009, about 100 people have been documented as killed over the course of months of protesting, if not more, because it's also very hard to document. Mm-hmm. People get into a lot of trouble. But in 2019, in November 2019, we see hundreds, yeah. do- as documented by human rights yeah. organizations, or possibly even more. Uh, killed by security forces over the course of a few days yeah. within a couple of weeks. And it just seems like they used the iron fist yeah. to sort of wrap up the protests in any possible means and use whatever needed um, to to stop this kind of uh, dissent. Now, how much do you think, Ali, these protests are an existential threat to the Islamic Republic? Because as you are saying, it, we're, when we're seeing we're observing these rounds of protests happening again and again, they don't seem to be stopping. the grievances are there if the demands are not addressed and we also just are uh, witnessing a change of uh, power at least within the administration. There's a new president coming in, a hardliner who was head of judiciary oversaw some of these harsh sentences being handed to the protesters of the past uh, couple of years. How much do you think? That First of all, they pose an existential threat to the Islamic Republic and how it's going to be moving forward after this change of administration from Rouhani, who's been more of a moderate, to Mm -hmm. someone like Raisi coming from the core of the hardline base.
1: So what we know from the government's response is that they perceive this protest as an existential threat. So in 2009, they shut down internet for the whole country and they cracked down heavily, and now we know that they just passed this bill in the parliament that is the beginning of the end of internet for Iranians. So they are taking this issue very seriously. They don't want Iranians to be able to communicate each other, because when Iranians or citizens communicate, that is a precondition for coordination of collective action, if manifestation of that uh, could be protest. Um, what is also common between these last three ways is that they do not have, they are not very organized, and the government has not let them to last long, because it's true that they are not organized, but sometimes when protests continue for a while, organizations develop during the course of the protest, or some existing organizations, I mean, we have some independent syndicates, we have some uh like uh, association of teachers of retirees that actually came out and supported the protest in Khuzestan. So the level of, we should we should remark that the level of uh, solidarity that was expressed by Iran's weak and wounded civil society for this protest has been really remarkable. so that's a, that's a mm-hmm. nice thing to see about Iranian society uh, right now. But, as long as this uh, disorganized character of the protests continues, it's hard to imagine that uh they can lead to a concrete outcome but nonetheless the the regime is very afraid, and we 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 know this from the responses to these protesters from the violence on the street, mass arrests afterwards, shutdown of internet, kidnapping, or attempts for kidnapping journalists that are uh, outside. Uh, country so yes they i think they they see whether it's an existential threat or not the government sees this as an uh, existential threat because protests have the potential to spill over and diffuse it as we saw it started among Arab population in khuzestan within a week we saw other cities outside khuzestan we saw protests in tehran and uh, a few other cities in, in solidarity with these protests. So that, uh, the, the fact that protests are contagious, makes it uh, a serious threat for the Islamic Republic. Now we have the presidency of Raisi. He's been involved in the death sentence. He was one of the three judges that gave the death sentence for uh, several thousands, a few, between a few and several thousands, political prisoners in Iran in 1988. So, yes, he's from the core of hardliners that prefer repression. They prefer uh, more confrontational foreign policy. They, I think they prefer to be in an uh, antagonistic relationship with the rest of the world, with the United States. This is the type of environment that they can reproduce. They can justify violence and they can agitate and mobilize their uh, supporters. So mm-hmm. the, I think this the fact that they chose Raisi, that has opened there are open investigations about uh, his involvement in these uh, massacres in 1980s and and later the fact that they choose him I think they are sending a signal to the society and to the international community that we don't care and we we are not afraid to show the iron fist now yes yeah, mm-hmm. so. Is it is the response by government is going to get more violent? I think it's been pretty violent, so I don't know if it's going to get more uh, violent than this. But we, it doesn't look like we are going to observe a decline in the in the level of repression. And as I mentioned, further repression is just going to add uh, to more grievances.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, as you mentioned, Rice, I just wanted to remind to our audience that we've had um, episodes in the past about the controversial presidential election, about Ibrahim um, Raisi, and we're going to discuss these issues also more in future episodes. I also want to encourage everyone um, to read the piece that you mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned that in the Foreign Affairs magazine. It's called Iran's Protests Are Not Just About Gas Prices. This is back in December 2019. Um, where you, uh, together with Saber Khani and Abou Fassou explained how repression won't solve mm. the deeper problems bringing Iranians to the streets. Mm. And Ali, finally, I want to ask you about um, foreign policy and basically um, the role of maximum pressure in everything that we've talked about. Mm. We know there was... This very different policy when Donald Trump came into power, he pulled out of the nuclear deal. Essentially, diplomacy stopped between Tehran and Washington, and there was this campaign of maximum pressure, crippling economic sanctions, mm-hmm. and then an escalation of military tension. Eventually, assassination of the Iranian general Soleimani, yeah. then later assassination of Fakhrizadeh, the nuclear scientist, and a more securitization of Iran's um, internal space as well. Talk about how much you think all of these external mm. factors um, play a role in these dynamics that we've seen um, inside Iran, the state's response to protests and the political space, and then possibly yeah. even the eventual rise of someone like Raisi.
1: Sure. I think we can observe two consequences. One is that it has decreased the level of factionalism within the Islamic Republic. Before Mm. the maximum pressure, we saw open disputes between President Rouhani and uh, leader Khamenei. But since the maximum pressure and sanctions started, we have not seen really a Rouhani challenging Khamenei. I think he has become even uh, way more docile and cooperative. So it has brought together different factions within Islamic Republic because they have perceived an existential threat. Level of repression has also increased. But increasing level of repression is not a new thing in Islamic Republic. There is a history of, uh, I mean. Before the revolution, the Pahlavi monarchy was repressive. And after the revolution, Islamic Republic has been repressive. Even level of repression, we can say, has intensified after the Iranian revolution. Um, So, yes, I think the international context matters to explain part of these changes. It doesn't certainly justify any of the violence that the Iranian government has unleashed against protesters. And Maximum pressure, I think, again, problems between Iran and U.S. don't start with Donald Trump. uh, We have to go back in the history. There is the 1953 coup, and then there's the hostage crisis. As long as Islamic Republic and United States are continuing and reproducing this kind of confrontation and uh, antagonism, this kind of problems happen for Iran. And as I mentioned, I think part of the Iranian hardliners prefer this kind of antagonism because this is how they can reproduce themselves. This, this is how they can justify isolation of Iran. I mean, this current uh, bill for shutting down uh, internet internet is, uh, is part of that. But before the revolution, Iran was not under sanction. And right now, there are countries, neighbors of Iran, Pakistan, Turkey, they are not under sanctions. So I think it yes, United States has been a violator of the nuclear deal. Certainly they're responsible. But as an Iranian, I I keep the leaders of Islamic Republic also accountable for the sanctions. Mm-hmm. Because they have said this is what I told Khomeini said that the America cannot do anything. Cannot do any wrong yeah. to Iran. Well it turns out that the US can't do wrong to Iran. And they Mm -hmm. have taken the responsibility to take care of the affair of the Iranian population. Iran's foreign policy has not been successful after the revolution. It has resulted to a lot of confrontation with the international community. Um, Again, the point is not that in this particular episode, Iran is right or Iran is wrong. Mm -hmm. My point is that the overall strategy of Iran's foreign policy has not been conducive to further development and growth. For Iran's economy, for engagement of Iran in international community, and yes, so we see this kind of consequences for for Iranian, both for Iranian politics and for uh, Iranian co- uh, economy. This, I think, was revealed. Uh, you remember the tape that was um, leaked from Zarif's uh, Iran's foreign minister mm-hmm. uh, conversation. In that he mentioned that there's a there's a structural problem that the what he called Maidan, which he meant the Iran's military strategic preferences.
0: The field, the yeah. Field.
1: But that's what he meant. The strategic military preferences that are determined by revolutionary guards mostly has taken priority over the over the needs of countries diplomacy, the needs for economic growth and uh, an interaction for international community. So I certainly see part of the problem from within Iran's domestic politics. And as long as Iran's overall foreign policy does not change, we are going to, maybe there will be a nuclear deal, but then another type of disruption uh, could happen. So we need, I think, an Islamic Republic or any state in Iran need a total revision of uh, Iran's foreign, foreign policy in which the military revolutionary guards would not be the, the ones that determine the foreign policy. There should be a democratic process for uh, setting priorities of foreign policy in Iran. This has not been the case under the Islamic Republic.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. As you're saying, basically, in brief, Zarif was admitting mm-hmm. that the field... Yeah takes precedence over the country's diplomatic apparatus. And despite the claims of Islamic Republic officials, sanctions have had tremendous impact on Iran and mainly on the Iranian people and the civilians, basically, and not really... The hardcore of the regime some of whom actually benefit from this tension and these years of sanctions all right we're gonna have to leave it at that Ali I want to thank you so much for your time and joining the Iran podcast
1: thank you very much for having me and for the wonderful conversation
0: Thank you. That was Mohammad Ali Kadivar, an assistant professor of sociology and international studies at Boston College, joining me from Massachusetts. And thank you for listening to another episode of The Iran Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash The Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.